Congress handles sexual harassment claims against its own members pretty poorly. But in trying to fix that, could they make the problem worse? Welcome back to A Cup of Politics. I'm Paul Singer, the USA Today Washington correspondent. Stories about sexual harassment are spreading like wildfire through the corridors of power around the country. From Hollywood to corporate America and you know, even the halls of Congress, we're hearing about men misbehaving and treating women primarily badly. Senator Al Franken of Minnesota has been accused of groping numerous women. Congressman John Conyers of Michigan has acknowledged secretly settling a harassment claim by a staff member, although in that case, uh, Conyers denies any actual wrongdoing. But now reporters are racing around the Capitol looking for the next shoe to drop. For Congress, part of the problem is, as usual, its own lack of transparency. Sexual harassment rules didn't apply at all to Congress until 1995. And then the rules they put in place were uniquely convoluted. Victims have to spend 30 days in counseling before they can make an actual claim. A claim has to be adjudicated by a congressional office called the Office of Compliance. Any financial settlement is paid out by the taxpayers, not by the harassers themselves. And the whole process generally remains secret. In the heat of the current scandal, Congress is considering changes to the system that would make it easier for victims to navigate and increase transparency of these cases. But could that backfire? Our reporter, Heidi Prisbala, has been covering this debate and joins us to discuss some of the potential pitfalls. Heidi Prisbala, thank you for joining us again on USA Today's Cup of Politics. Thanks for having me. You have been leading our charge on covering the political side, basically, of the sexual harassment uh, scandals that are sweeping the country at this point. Um, and, and let's talk first about the processes that exist in Congress and why this has been the focus of so much attention. What's the problem with the way Congress is handling sexual harassment claims on Capitol Hill? The problem is that we are realizing that Congress is unique in terms of industry. And virtually every other industry operates like an actual business where you have a central HR department and you have certain standards. And what we're finding on Congress, now that we lift that dome and start having some of these difficult discussions, is that there is a very convoluted process um, that makes it hard at every step of the way for victims or people who want to make claims about harassment to actually see that process to fruition that includes um, multiple channels, for instance, where mm -hmm. or multiple places where you can go to file those claims. Um, some of it leads to settlements and some of it is just actually filing, you know, put, putting something on the record and that these different places don't communicate with each other. That's one thing. Um, but the most important thing is that if you do want to, you know, file charges that could lead to some kind of settlement, um, there are so many roadblocks that require arbitration, mediation, 
um, require you to actually, you know, be face to face with your harasser in terms of counseling. Um, and then in the end, even if you are successful, many times it ends in a what's called an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, which then forbids you from speaking out. And according to the reporting that we've done, even speaking to outside sources such as your therapist. Um, wow. So that level of putting a gag on uh, victims is also uh, viewed as one of the things that, that Congress wants to address, but um, just the entire process is seen as something that just is really discourages victims from pursuing well, anything. And people forget that the way Congress operates, um, it's 535 separate offices, and each one of those offices acts like a small business and has its own set of standards and policies. Um, that until 1995, there really was no centralized uh, place to make these harassment comp uh, complaints. And so they're, one of the challenges Congress has is that they are still trying to deal with 535 separate small businesses, not one employer. Your employer is not the U.S. Congress. Your employer is you know, Senator Singer or Senator Prisbala. It's a different thing than having to deal with uh, you know, a sing as you were saying in, in in industry, a single HR department, mm -hmm. you know, and which makes it hard to even for a victim who, or someone who may be victimized uh, to even know where to go. Well, and so the first step in both the House and the Senate appears to be so far increased training for congressional office. That appears to be pretty non-controversial. Is that right? Yeah, that seems like <laughs> we, basically they're catching up with the 21st century uh, standards in most every other industry. You and I all and, you know, at USA Today and my previous employer uh, take that type of training just to know it's basic information about what is harassment and don't do this. Um, but they, you know, and that was, <laughs> that's been offered on the Hill. But it hasn't been mandatory. Right. Because there's just like anything else, unless there is a, some kind of pr outside pressure or uh, imperative for Congress to do something, they won't, especially when it comes to regulating themselves. Right. Well, now they will do at least that, we, as far as we can <laughs> tell. But let's, But what's interesting about some of your reporting is that there's a whole series of other steps that are being proposed to uh, change this uh, reporting and settlement process. But it had they have their own potholes. So let's let's start with what are some of the proposals on the table that could improve the process that you were talking about before? Right. So there's two main things that are under discussion, which are um, basically uh, making public some of these settlements because there's been so much outrage about the fact that there have been settlements. And by the way, we don't know the exact number. There's a, a broad mm -hmm. number that includes all different types of discrimination, which is money that comes out of the Treasury accounts. Um, for lawmakers who've who've settled. So um, part of it in terms of disclosure is just kind of putting that information out there, um, allowing people to see, you know, who these offices are. But the controversy with that provision is that when you do that, do you, you know, indirectly also identify the victim? So if, if, if we are going to publicly report that Congressman Singer's office settled a harassment complaint, there's only 20 people that work in Congressman Singer's office. There you go. So it and makes it very easy for, you know, someone who is at least, you know, minimally talented reporter to identify who the employees are in that office, look at a payroll sheet and see who no longer is an employee in that office and thereby identify who that 
who that person is. And in many cases, this is you know a very traumatic experience for the victim. Number one, don't want to be identified. Number two, um, this is an industry. A lot of people come here to for a long-term career opportunities and may want to continue working on Capitol Hill. And so that is a concern, is that those names might unintentionally be revealed. Well, and then the second question was about who pays for the settlement, because again, sometimes these do result in a cash payment, as mm-hmm. we've seen now, right. is that there have been reported, oh, was it, I think Conyers had you know, $27,000 paid out in a settlement or something like that. Those are taxpayer-funded payments, right? That's Right. And so that is part of that outrage about that fund is that these are why they uh, many taxpayers. And I see this, peop, you know, in people I talk to out on the street about it, too, why they're very exercised. Why am I as a taxpayer on the line for this type of horrendous behavior in these settlements? OK, so that's clear what the pro argument is there. OK, my reporting is that there was actually a meeting in um, Leader Pelosi's office Tuesday night where at least one or two female Democrats raised the possibility that, you know, before we rush to the to to rush through new legislation, let's think about the fact that while there are millionaires in Congress, they're also very average salary, you know, humble kind of background Mm -hmm. uh, members there who don't have really deep pockets. So if you are a victim of a rich member of Congress, now you get a settlement. But if you are a victim of a poor member of Congress, you may not or that may get because they don't have the funds to pay it. And so there's concern about. So if you shift the burden of responsibility to the individual Congress member to pay off these settlements themselves, then you are reducing the potential payout pool for the victim. Exactly. That's the argument is that maybe these victims never would get compensated. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of debate about this. And how do you how do you how do you address that issue. But I, I also talked, you know, with some, I mean, this is not a minority, a minority position. I don't know how many people are concerned about this, but I talked with another female lawmaker separately about this who said, look, in any other sector that is public service, you don't have this standard. Like if you're a police officer and somebody sues you, um, or if you're a teacher, you know, in public school system, somebody sues you, that is paid for by the department. By the department. And in this case, you're holding members of Congress to a different standard. And you know what is what is the average salary right now? Eighty hundred seventy four thousand dollars. Okay. Well, I but, guess that. Well, and it also gets to the point, and I think about it because as we talk through this, a lot of these claims are not necessarily against the member themselves. It could be against somebody else in the office, right? So if you have a a, a chief of staff who is accused of which harassment, is the actual case of that, right? actual, actual case of that, mm-hmm. um, uh, does that mean that you're now the the extent of your uh, uh, repayment or damages? is only as deep as the pockets of a 27-year-old congressional chief of staff. Right. Or in that case, who pays, right? Because if the language only stipulates if it's the member of Congress who pays, then you have kind of a limbo area of, well, what if it's a staff member? So the point is that more needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Everybody agrees on that. But in this atmosphere of heightened sensitivity, there is uh, momentum to get something done. And members of Congress know that oftentimes when you have a moment like this, you need to seize it yes. to get something done. So how do you balance that with the need to also be very deliberate and thoughtful about whatever additional legislation you put out there so that you make sure that you're actually 
protecting the victims and not, A, making it harder for them to get a settlement, and B, um, maybe unintentionally making it easier for them to be identified when they wish to remain anonymous. Are, are these bipartisan conversations at this point? Is this is this a party line debate still? There are bipartisan leaders on this in terms of uh, Jackie Speer on the Democratic side from California, Barbara Comstock from Virginia. But right now there um, there are some bi- and there are some bipartisan bills, um, but. It's hard to know which one of them is actually going to gain traction because you have, on the one hand, a group with members like Marsha Blackburn, um, who have a higher, a Republican who have actually a a higher um, level of disclosure. Whereas with um, Jackie Spears' legislation, they would only identify the office and not the the lawmaker or the chief of staff or mm-hmm. whoever the person is. It could be anybody in the office. But again, I bring you back to it's the same problem. These offices are small. And right. when there's turnover, it's very easy to identify once you've identified which office it is that's at issue. And of course, this being the U.S. Congress, um, what they like to do in moments like this is pass the easiest possible thing. And so then, that they can pat themselves on the back. And then declare themselves yeah. done, right? So, the, right. so the, the, um, the training part of it, the anti-harassment training part of it, They'll pass unanimously and and then say, see, we passed something. Right, right. And right now the the, the spotlight is on them. We've really gone from west to east coast and mm-hmm. who knows which industry will pop next. But right now the focus really is on Capitol Hill. Well, let's talk about that a minute because, I mean, we're in this moment here as reporters in Washington. We've both been in Washington as reporters for years and have covered Congress and, and politics for years. There is a challenge here where now there's a great deal of interest in are there more of these cases out there? Can we find those cases? Can we bring forward previously unreported allegations? On the same side, we don't want to be on, involved in a witch hunt where we are simply you know, looking for an excuse to put someone's name in a headline with the word sexual harassment next to it. Um, talk something about how the climate has changed as reporters covering this stuff and and what you are doing to your due diligence to make sure that we're not just sort of throwing stuff out there. Well, it's really a symptom of the broader Me Too movement, which is is undeniably a good thing for the culture and discourse in our country. But at the same time, is there's a counter argument that you are also, in some instances, blurring the lines between what is clear-cut assault and what is, gee, that person made me feel uncomfortable. Right. Um, and so we have that same gray area uh, in any industry, and we have it on, on Capitol Hill. But in the case of Capitol Hill, we have something else that is really insidious, which is politics. And we are actually starting to see um, that, and this is no surprise, that there may be some folks who want to take, make political hay out of this. Really? If you are shocked, I am shocked. <laughs> Gambling it, <rips>. Um <laughs> And so we saw that actually yesterday, Paul, where we had a woman schedule a news conference where she was going to potentially identify a member of Congress who she was claiming sexually harassed her. And then we as journalists found out that she was employed by a well-known conspiracy theorist, you know, far-right conspiracy theorist, um, which immediately called into question the veracity of her account. It turned out she had gone to multiple news organizations previously and could not get them to publish to go with her story. And so that is a reminder to all of us in our industry um, that there are some yellow caution lights flashing at this moment 
moment of where we are in the dialogue because these are people's lives that are at stake. And, you know, she she did. It's turned out I, I looked and she did find success in getting at least one news organization to publish her accusations without naming who she was accusing, mm. um, which is concerning. Well, in fact, you know, you raise a point that I think our listeners may not be aware of, of what one of the challenges on that particular case um, uh, for us is that because of the interest in this topic and the interest throughout the news industry in getting these stories out there, um, if a, uh, a woman is going to make an on-the-record allegation against a member of Congress, uh, and name that member of Congress, um, we're going to write that story. Right? This person is on the record putting themselves out there. Um, and and our concern in that particular case was we knew who this person was. We were learning a little bit about their background. If she had actually made it to the microphones, would we have published a story saying, breaking news, person X accuses Congressman Y of sexual harassment, and then in the small print, we don't know more of the details. There's some reason to be suspicious of this person, et cetera, et cetera. Or would we have decided not to publish that because we had doubts about the story and be the only ones in the news industry not publishing it? And and that's so that that that's such a challenge right now, um, especially because oftentimes what happens is that the headline is what continues uh, persists that's through right. time on the internet. Always shows up on Google and. That context, if it's added later, um, becomes less of, of the story. And that is where we as journalists have to, I think, kind of gird yourself in terms of your moral compass um, to understand that the most important thing in this instance is getting it right and not necessarily getting it first. Um, and our, our instincts as journalists yep. are in this digital atmosphere where things are hugely, you know, competition is fierce. Um, to be the first ones out, you get the most clicks. Um, but in this case, I think that um, this is a reminder, especially uh, given events of the past few days, um, to make sure that when these people are going public, that you have at least a cursory check of their background, right? Who they are, and um, and that their claims. And is there a reason to have? Is doubt? there any reason to have any doubt about their claims? Yeah. So one last question before I let you go: Do do you get a sense that there is a sort of a watershed change in culture going on in Washington politics? That that what we're seeing here is going to be different going forward, that it'll be, that, that harassment will be less prevalent, that it'll be a more uh, welcoming and equal footing uh, uh, on Capitol Hill for women? Well, Paul, you and I have never lived through a moment like this before because of our age. I mean, we were we were not, I would say, working professionals during the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings, which is really the last comparable watershed moment when women really felt like this is going to change the culture. And the postmortem on that today is that it did not. Clearly, we're in it, we're we're in the situation that we're right. in today, and we've made we're making progress. Um, and so, my inclination, though, living through this and looking at just the relentless drumbeat, is to say yes, this is going to lead to changes, and we're seeing real legislative changes. Um, but does that mean that we're not going to see harassment in the workplace anymore? Um, does, you know, I, I doubt it Probably because not. right now there's a there's a bright light on this, and I'm sure that there are instances of harassment that were taking place that have stopped cold in their tracks because of this, and that is a great thing. Um, but once the cameras go away and the news stories go away, um, there will still be harassers in the workplace, um, and there will still be victims. But hopefully, 
um, this is a generational thing too, because now this generation of women will have lived through this moment and know, hey, um, culture has changed such that maybe when I come public, my character um, is not going to be immediately assassinated and that there is support in the workplace because they'll remember this. Right. There, there is definitely, at least at this moment, a, if you see something, say something, culture uh, change uh, that I think is interesting to, interesting to witness. And we'll see how long it lasts. Heidi Prisbala, thank you very much for joining us here on Cup of Politics. And thanks for your great reporting. Thank you. Obviously, we will keep on top of this issue here at USA Today. We're covering it on a daily basis, what Congress is doing, uh, what cases are continuing to emerge, what's going on in the entertainment industry. Um, it is becoming uh, a fairly major focus of our coverage. So so stay with us. You can get all of our coverage of this and, of course, your regular politics coverage at usatoday.com. Uh, you should check out our On Politics blog while you're there. Uh, we tweet our political coverage from uh, at USA Today DC. Um, you ought to fight, follow. You ought to follow Heidi Presbala on Twitter. She is at Heidi Presbala. Her joke is it's just like it sounds, but Presbala is P R Z Y B Y L A. Follow her for all her coverage of this topic. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the Cup of Politics. We're on Apple Podcasts. It's a Nice, free, and easy way to make sure you don't miss an episode of Cup of Politics. And you can also find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and, you know, every other sort of podcast webby thing you can think of. Many thanks to Taylor Macon, our producer, and thanks, as always, to Chris Moscatello for our theme music.